Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're going back to the Middle Ages and talking about early handwritten books. I'm joined by Eric Quackle, a professor in book history in the School of Information at the University of British Columbia. On February the 26th, Eric will be speaking at the Vancouver Public Library Central Branch at an Alcuin Society event. Eric's talk is titled The Gutenberg Bible, Innovation or Imitation. He will address how little Gutenberg deviated from the design of handwritten books created in the Middle Ages. As you all know, the Gutenberg Bible was Europe's first printed book. Eric's speciality is medieval manuscripts. His talk will examine how the medieval handwritten books inspired the early printers. He will also explain how the commercial book trade operated during the Middle Ages. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. All right. Um, your talk, uh, the Gutenberg Bible, is regarded as a, a seminal moment in, in history and Western culture. So can you explain how Gutenberg was influenced by handwritten manuscripts? Yeah, circa, circa 1455, he um, started to experiment with making uh, a means to make books quicker with um, a lead type, so movable type, which is a story that people probably uh, know. Uh, what is perhaps not so uh, well known is that he actually looked back to the Middle Ages and um, to see what sort of books looked like so that he could use their format and modeling for his enterprise. So he didn't try to invent something new. Uh, the process was new, the technology behind it, but not so much the result. So the product itself, the book on the lap of the reader, uh, who bought one of his uh, volumes, is actually very much the same object as what was sort of available in the medieval period for over a thousand years. So um, many of us are familiar that monks uh, and monasteries were involved in the production of handwritten books, but I believe you're also very knowledgeable about how it evolved from monks into some sort of commercial manuscript business um, in the middle of in the in the Middle Ages. Yeah, this actually taps in nicely with uh, what we just we were just talking about, because uh, Gutenberg sort of extended a trade, a business that was already well established uh, during the Middle Middle Ages. So sort of a commercial enterprise that we see in the age of print, where people have very specialized tasks, where quality is very important, um, where, where it's innovations in, um, in sort of the design of the page and the manuscript and uh, the book is uh, seen. That's something that was already in place in the 13th century, so over 200 years before Gutenberg started to experiment. So this is sort of um, almost like a hidden side of medieval book production, that it's easy to think that monks produced the books in the Middle Ages, and up to around 1100, that's probably very true. The, with some exceptions, monks were very busy producing these objects for themselves and sometimes for people in the outside world. But um, with the university coming around 1200, um, there were other people starting to produce books. There was a great demand, an explosion in demand uh, for books, and people started to see if they could... Uh, purchase these objects in sort of commercial places. And so we see in the 13th century in the largest cities uh, a variety of commercial enterprises emerging. 
so scribes would now start to charge money, uh, would develop a business, would uh, form collaborations with other scribes and illuminators and binders. And uh, by the end of the 13th century, there was a well-established commercial book trade in many larger cities in Europe, very much like what you see in the age of print, uh, also uh, sort of establishing across Europe. So even, in a sense, the, the way books were made and traded were also, it was also modeled on, on earlier uh, patterns, as it were. Would a scribe actually sell the book as well? Yeah, th- this is a, a bit different from how we do it now. You can go to a bookstore now and see something you like and walk out five minutes later with a book under your arm. Um, in the medieval period, it took a long time to produce a manuscript. Um, if it's a longer text, such as the Bible or a large uh, story, um, it might take as much as four or five, uh, six months, or even you know, if there's also illumination that needs to go in, it might actually take a year. So this is... It's a different uh, business model. You pay a little bit in advance, and then the scribe uh, goes to work um, along the specifications that you gave him and uh, will ultimately sort of check in with you, see if the work is okay, ask for more money, and he goes back to his shop and starts working again. And this can go on for a little while, so that after half a year, you, you can actually walk away with a book under your arm. But that's, that's a longer, much longer time than we have now. So uh, a number of people would actually be involved in the, in the production of a book. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful enterprise, I think. Uh, and you can see this when you look at manuscripts today in libraries. There's different individuals at work, uh, especially in these commercial books. Um, in monasteries, collaboration was common as well, but it's usually one or two people uh, producing a manuscript. Whereas in the commercial world, for example, in Paris and London, um, it's a variety of people who do uh, this stuff. So there's one or two, three, four um, uh, scribes. Then there is two or three illuminators, a uh, decorator taking care of the larger initials, um, and ultimately also bookbinders. So it's a real, it's a real community um, who's involved in the production of a single book. And we very often see the same uh, networks, mini networks in the city, also produce different books. So it's also a social network and in London for example you see that bookmakers and uh, illuminators are also each other's witnesses in court cases so it's a real tight community socially but also uh, commercially and um, as far as their profession is concerned so if a scribe was commissioned to produce a book would they let's say it was a Bible would they copy an existing book yeah, it's the only way to get a book in the Middle Ages is to find the same text somewhere. Uh, for example, in a library nearby uh, from a private individual, or you might go to a monastery. We have uh, from the monastery in Bruges, there's a list of books that were uh, given to people in the city for a number of weeks, and then they could bring it back. So that's a way to get hold of the text, and then you would uh, find somebody who can copy it for you. You could also do it yourself. So you can write, and students did this quite often in the Middle Ages, copy their own textbooks. But normally you would, um, either with that particular text under your arm, go to the scribe, the commercial scribe, who will then start to work for you. Or sometimes scribes have their own uh, network of uh, finding certain texts. You also see that particular scribes often copied the same text multiple times, which uh, is on the one hand sort of a signal that this is a commercial person because nobody would copy the same text three or four times for himself. So it must be for other people and therefore uh, for money. But also this shows you that they likely had a few books on file sort of in their library 
that people would uh, go for, especially to that particular scribe, because he was known to have, for example, a very good copy of the Bible. So in that way, it's a very professional world as well, where uh, even the scribe uh, sort of assigned himself a certain area of uh, texts and information. So it's, it's a very it's a very interesting thing that's going on. So these businesses, uh, they need to sell their goods. How do they promote themselves? There's, there's a great deal uh, of evidence for this, and especially in the later Middle Ages. Um, the most important way to do this as a commercial person is to show the world how good you can write. And you do this um, uh, by uh, making a sort of a sample sheet in which you write the first line of a certain text, often the Psalms, uh, a few times in different types of uh, letters, different scripts, and you put that in front of your window or on the wall. And we have uh, a number of these still survive. The back is always blank. And on the front you see a variety, up to 20 or so different uh, typefaces, as it were, but there's no printing yet, so scripts will be better. Um, and it, it's also accompanied by the names of the script. So you would walk past the shop, and all these commercial people were usually uh, collected in, in sort of one street. In Paris, London, Bruges, Brussels, the larger cities all have these people in one street working together. So you can just walk through the street and um, stand in front of a window, see what you like about the particular way of writing and then go in and say i'd like a book in that handwriting please and you can even even use the term the proper term that was written in gold over those samples so it's a real professional business um it's custom tailored to what the audience wants you can you can ask for certain things that are not conventional we see this in commercial books as well and uh, it's very much uh, it's like shopping you go shop for a book except you have to wait for half a year before it's finished and how much would a manuscript co uh, cost in something like the 14th century? Well, the, the fact that it takes so long, and if it's commercial, um, means that it's quite expensive. So if you have to employ a scribe to work for you for half a year to produce one copy, that is a half year's uh, salary for one person. And this also shows you why medieval manuscripts were actually still very sort of expensive in the, in the period and uh, could only be acquired by people with a lot of cash, and especially if you wanted to build a library, which is very unusual in this period, uh, private libraries. But if you wanted to do that, you had con have to have considerable uh, money to spend on this uh, product, the book. So it's, it's, it's very expensive. We don't know how much precisely in terms of um, precisely how much monetary units are connected to a single book or a single page or a choir. Sometimes the sales of these things were per, done per choir, so these little packages of folded leaves inside the book. Uh, we do have um, sometimes uh, sales notes on the inside of books that say, the, for, the, for the scribe, I paid so much. For the binding, I paid so much. And for the decoration, so much. Except the money in Europe did not have one value. And so you first need to know where the book was made, and then you have to sort of try to find out how much a certain value, uh, monetary value, was really worth in, for example, wages of a carpenter or wages of a, of a professional. And that's very difficult to do. So we actually, the short answer is, I gave you the long answer, but the short answer is we have no idea how much book costs, uh, books cost in the Middle Ages, but we do know that um, because of the production process, it will have been a considerable amount of money. Right. But uh, at the start, you mentioned... Uh 
quality of books. So would the price vary according to the materials used? Yes, yeah, absolutely. The, so the, the price varies with what you put in. Is it just text or also decoration, illustration? And if it's illustration, does it include gold, which is very expensive? Um, the other consideration is what kind of materials do you want to use for the pages? Is it paper or parchment? Paper was a little bit more uh, cheap, but still expensive, but cheaper. Um, if it's parchment, is it good quality, bad quality? There is about three different types of parchment available at the time, we know from uh, accounts. And uh, the cheapest kind was uh, sort of the stuff that was cut off from the good kind, that was sort of the remains that went into the bin. And you could have somebody make a book for you from that sort of leftover material, which were usually very tiny books, and they looked a little bit scruffy. So it's it's the market is incredibly broad the spectrum from very very high and expensive high-end uh, products uh, bought by royalty to the far end of the spectrum scruffy little books of only a few pages that could not even be bound that's how thin they were but that allowed uh, somebody with not very much money to buy something for example uh, because it was important for his religion so it's it's a very broad spectrum right and who were the customers uh, for these scribes well the customers um, depends on where you are <clears throat> in the city it's usually the patricians so rich merchants who had some money left over at the end of the year to to buy some uh, books it's the royalty and then you have a considerable considerable amount of manuscripts going to an individual um, usually in very high quality good quality parchment decoration with gold but there's also uh, an important reader in many cities is the scholar. So with the emergence of the university, as I said, the uh, book production became commercial. And now um, it's the student and the teacher who becomes an important part of this whole system as sort of regular buyers of books. And in cities like Paris, for example, you have a book market that is actually split up into two parts. So there's two streets. One is the street across the Notre Dame Cathedral, where you can buy your French manuscripts, so in the vernacular, in the native tongue of people, and you can go to the Rue Saint-Jacques, so the uh, street of Saint-Jacques, where you can buy all sorts of uh, university texts in Latin, and often very difficult theology, um, law, etc. So, so it's uh, just like the, there's, a, there's a broad variety of books made, types of books and quality, there's also a very broad variety of customers for these objects. And uh, you, you mentioned that these businesses huddle together in groups, so I guess around universities and uh, cathedrals. Yeah, they found places where they knew a lot of people would come that could read. And so in most cities that I'm aware of, um, the street is located close to the cathedral or the main church in a city. And this is, of course, because of the canons that come uh, to the church every day to make sure that all the services are in order and to make the, the everyday routines in the church go right. That's what the canons did. Um, there is often priests coming to the church. They can read. So a street near the main uh, religious hub was a very uh, smart thing to do, to, to set, your shop, uh, set up your shop over there. Um, the other thing is what I just mentioned, the Rue Saint-Jacques, that was indeed close to the University de Sorbonne, although it wasn't called that, that at, the, at that point. But that's another uh, smart thing to do because you want to have uh, an audience that can see your merchandise that will also use it. So they basically found a place close to uh, their readers. 
So these scribes, did they have a, a high standing in society, or, or were they considered to be tradesmen? They, they were tradesmen. And uh, in many places, so much so that they don't even appear in tax registers because they didn't earn enough. So we have many, many hundreds of scribes, for example, in uh, 14th century Paris, copying to such an extent that they don't appear on the horizon of our textbooks, that sort of didn't pay enough. Um, we also have sort of the high-end scribes, the very well-known scribes, that are, so we know more information about them, and they would uh, probably earn a little bit more, they probably have a higher quality, they may have an extended network of artisans whom they could ask to uh, complete certain other parts of the book, like decoration. Um, so that's, I think that there's not much explicit information we have about it, but based on surviving manuscripts, I think we can make that claim that there was also uh, a gradation uh, in expertise and uh, networking in the in the scribal uh, era, sort of in the in the group of scribes in a certain city. It's quite ironic that their work has survived all of these centuries and are now prized by collectors and institutions around the mm -hmm. world. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm I'm happy that they are because it means I can go and look at them. Right, um, they survive, which is great. And I always uh, very much in favor of. Um, seeing manuscripts sort of buy by bought by universities um, because then they're in in the public collection they'll be cared for properly and um, I get to sort of see them whenever I want to there is there's still a lot of um, stuff out there in in private collections which is also good and people care for it as well but it's not so much on the scope of uh, scholars because you don't really know what's out there unless somebody makes a catalog and what I I also found amazing is how many of these handwritten uh, manuscripts survive because of the durability of the, the materials. Yeah, it's true, yeah. The parchment, uh, I see it every day here at UBC. Um, my students work with parchment books and they, they probably look the same as they were uh, five, six hundred years ago. And they're, they're always very careful with it, which is excellent, you should be, but they can handle themselves, right? They, they've been around for so many hundreds of years, used by various dozens and dozens of users, which is also an, an excellent uh, thing to show students that they're not the first one, they're number 100 or 150 to actually start reading and flipping through these pages. Um, so parchment is a very sturdy material, it's, but paper is a little bit different because um, it can be brittle, and especially 14th century paper, for example, is very thick and might uh, crack here and there. Uh, but parchment is, is great. It was also recycled for that purpose quite a bit, so we find strips of parchment from medieval manuscripts in bindings, inside bindings, uh, for support, for example, because of the material being so sturdy. Uh, so there was a great deal of uh, use for that material, for that animal skin. And how do your students react when they are presented with this manuscript that's hundreds of years old? The, you know, having a manuscript on a table is the easiest way to get people fascinated for your topic. Um, even if I, uh, in the past when I would teach history, I would still take my students to uh, the library to give them a piece of history. So the tangibility, being able to touch history is, I think, a super important pedagogical tool. It, you don't have to work very hard to make students super interested in the material, especially if you, if you for example, point out, we have one manuscript here, it's a, it's a large Spanish manuscript, it's very large, that has very dirty corners from uh, generations and generations of uh, monks, I think, um, flipping through the book. It's very large pages, so hard to flip, so you 
firmly press the corner, and so now it's all black. And if you put your student's finger on there, if you put your own finger on there, and you say, I'm now doing the same as somebody was doing 500 years ago, that's sort of that connection that is uniquely produced by medieval manuscripts because it's so, um, they, they are so good in absorbing the traces of use uh, through the ages. I presume the church, the church's influence remained really strong on books during this period. Um, I, I, I think it's uh, more so other institutions that try to regulate the trade. So we have uh, church involvement in the age of print. So we get the, the catalog of uh, forbidden books, for example, the first one 1559, but then we're well into the age of print. Um, as far as I know, in the Middle Ages, it's predominantly the institution of, for example, the university who tried to regulate things for very good reasons. Uh, we have, for example, regulations from Paris stating that if you want to sell books to students, you need to uh, sign a document in which you also promise to charge proper prices, not too much, uh, that you offer corrected texts, so without mistakes, that are um, sort of in line with what's needed in the classroom. And um, you can't just set up a shop and start to sell books for the community, uh, the university community. You actually have to abide by certain rules. So that's sort of the, that's actually so, sort of the regulation that you would think the church would do, but I have predominantly um, clues that it was sort of the university that sort of did that thing for, for different purposes, intellectual purposes, to have a correct text that didn't cost too much. Right. Okay. Now, for someone who deals with uh, books that are uh, centuries old all day long, I'm very intrigued to hear about what books you are currently reading. <laughs> well, I, I read less than I should. Um, I used to read quite a bit. I, I used to read five novels a week, and then I started to do my PhD, and, and things went downhill from there. Um, so basically what I read all day are uh, articles from my colleagues. So it's basically literature for, uh, for my studies, for my, for, my, for my research, and the occasional uh, novel, but I don't find the patience anymore to go through a full novel. So I, I, I read science fiction. I like science fiction because it's short and very entertaining, and I don't have to work very hard. Because when I'm at home after a, a day of uh, browsing through modern books and medieval manuscripts, I just like to read something that's very fluffy. So I, it's not nothing very heavy or anything. That makes sense for someone who works with books all day long. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all we have time for this week. Eric, many thanks for joining us. That's Eric Quackle, a professor in book history in the School of Information at the University of British Columbia. Eric also blogs at medievalbooks.nl, and that's well worth a visit, medievalbooks.nl. He'll be speaking on the 26th of February at the Vancouver Public Library Central branch. And you can find out more about that event at the Alcuin Society website, which is alcuinsociety.com. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next time.